0: welcome to from the producer's office a series of informal podcasts with opera holland park's director of opera james clutton in conversation with creatives and collaborators we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft
1: hello welcome to from the producer's office i'm james clutton director of opera Opera holland park today i've got with me a great guest someone i admire very much uh, sir nicholas kenyon the uh, Managing Director of the Barbican Centre. Nicholas, welcome to From the Producers Office. Great to be here, James. Thanks for joining us, we great to Can we just talk about you your varied career? We never, if we did a series on you, we couldn't talk about it all and all the brilliant <laughs> things, but um, can I just ask, because people seem to be interested in this one, I ask things, right at the very beginning, was there classical music, theater, anything in your family when you were growing up or were you the first person to, to get the bug in your family?
0: It's interesting. My parents were, I would say, interested in music, but they weren't concert goers or theatre goers or... No, not at all. And uh, I'll tell you exactly what got me into music, which was two things. Church choir. I Uh grew up up south of Manchester, uh, grew up a Catholic, sang in church choir, all that wonderful repertory that you get uh, exposed to in in that area. And the other thing was Gilbert and Sullivan.
1: Oh, really? and,
0: and so they, um, I've never been a great performer, but the height of my performing career, uh, before I moved on to other things, was singing leading ladies in Gilbert and Sullivan operas at school. Perfect. <laughs> so those, those two things actually I think were a wonderful stimulus uh, to get involved in music and um, as part of being in the church choir, I came to London on a Choir Boy summer school uh, at Westminster Cathedral. George Malcolm was one of the people conducting that and there was a feeling uh, on their part, oh, uh, this chap ought to learn an instrument. That was uh, at the same time uh, on that same summer school, so I can date it pretty... No, I won't date it precisely. (laughs) (laughs) We We were taken to a prom rehearsal which was, coincidentally, Jacqueline Dupre playing the Elgar Concerto. So, as you can imagine, that had quite a a strong influence at that moment. So I did start playing the cello at that point, but then my youth orchestra up in Stockport uh, had a spare bassoon (laughs) <laughs> and I actually found I preferred being one of two, being, a, you know, being a bit of an individualist, <laughs> I preferred being one of two bassoons to being one of 12 cellos, so that was the way that went. <laughs>
1: That's fantastic.
0: So that seeing Jacqueline de must have been
1: fantastic, even at the time, that must have, must have oh, really you know, made an impact.
0: Yes, it really did, both the, the piece, um, uh, because the Elgar Concerto is such a powerful uh, work, and her, and just hearing music made on that level of professionalism was amazing. We didn't have a television at the time, so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't seeing stuff, but I was listening to the radio and picking up music that way. Mm. But I think one of the, one of the great things um, that I felt is that I never studied music to death in that sense, and I picked it up as I went along and it was my great enthusiasm in life. It's, it's
1: great to hear that because I think there's so many people that um, the work in the arts at some level, that it was a vocation and a job. It, the two merged at, the, at, a, at a beautiful time, so it didn't feel like you're making this big decision to go and get a job because it was doing what you'd like doing and it's just a sort of improvement and an enlargement of that.
0: Yes, but I think there was, if you like, a big decision, there was a big moment later on because what I started doing was writing about music and being yeah. a music critic, and, as it were, looking at it from the outside. Uh, yeah. And it was only later on that I took the, the leap, as it were, ac- across the no-man's land that tends to divide <laughs> critics from doers. And, you know, after a, after a decade or two, i think you know you get um not exactly tired but you you get ashamed of perpetually slagging people off for doing it badly and you want to have a chance to to do it in some way yourself so that was when i went into radio 3 and started to work for the bbc
1: yeah i mean that was a you know i can understand that jump because i always have a very good relationship with critics and and because i think that there are you know, integral part of what we do and and we all very very and I hope any critics that ever hear this will agree with me I always give them a good time on the way because I think that we're happy to take their word when we've enjoyed the review <laughs> and, <laughs> and I remember and saying and I hate critics, the
0: useful criticism they come out of the negative review
1: well indeed, indeed but I I do think also this part of that we we're, we're very happy when we get them and and often when they've picked up on something that you know, they, they didn't like, a lot of the times you sort of knew that as well, but you have to have total belief in it to to get it on stage. Of course you do, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so then you went to work in, in the BBC, as you say, um, radio's a, a great favorite medium of mine still to this day. Did you, did you always like radio? Did you always like listening to the radio?
0: Yes, I always I always loved radio, and I used to, apparently, uh, uh, according to my parents, I used to collect copies of Radio Times and compare them week by week to see what had changed, so I, I know I must have been at heart a scheduler of some, (laughs) of some kind. But remember when I, uh, turned up at Radio 3, uh, 92, that was just when Classic FM was coming on stream. I think there was a great fear around, that Classic FM would simply decimate Radio 3 and there, there wouldn't be a role for it. Uh, and I, I think what we managed to prove was that they are very, very different animals and that they can both coexist very healthily as they have gone on doing uh, right right to the present. Yeah, I,
1: um, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, in, in, recent, in recent, not in the same level yet by any means, but. The new, the new kid on the block with Skylar Radio trying to do the same thing and, and Classic FM thinking about that. So I think it's the more out there and the more different ways we can get people to listen to it, even, in, even by stealth.
0: Yes, um, I think the big, don't you think the big challenge is whether people are going to want scheduled music in that way mm-hmm. when the opportunities of uh, streaming, playlists, self-selected yeah. uh, is so much greater i mean i've i've always felt that what radio three does is to surprise you with mm. what it plays and expand yeah. your horizons and i yeah. think that's also true of the proms as a um you know as a concert program It yeah. should, and that's what the bbc is there for um push the boundaries yeah and i really hope that that goes on
1: well, I think I think that's right. I mean I, we have uh, in normal times, we're speaking now in September 2020, but, and I'm actually in my office today, but in normal times when my office is busy, um, we have Radio 3 on all day um, because a lot of those presenters have, have become friends of mine, Donald yeah. Cloud and Pedro Cialone. Yeah. But also it feels if you were working in news, you'd have BBC news on all day. We work in yeah. classical music, we have Radio 3 on all day. It just yeah. you hear things and bits of news and different pieces and different performances. And I think it still does that even this weekend I was listening to Private Passions and they played yes. a they played a bit of Debussy that I didn't know and I right. scuttled off to find what it was and, and and get it in its entirety.
0: Well I'm glad you mentioned that because Private Passions with Michael is one of the programs that we uh, invented in our time at radio. Oh, oh that was a good I,
1: I didn't know that I should have known that but that was a very lucky thing to say. Oh, then. Yeah.
0: And it's still there and uh, you know they these presenters you know, they have really strong links with the audience, and I think that's great. Um, uh, Donald doing composer of the Week, um, Sean we with yep. In Tune. Yep. That was something that came about in an interesting way because, um, we invented the programme In Tune. I, I wanted to focus on the whole sort of drive time potential for Radio mm. 3, but in the beginning, In Tune was spread around the country. And we right. had it presented by different people from different regional centres. But right. Sean, who was presenting it from Northern Ireland, was so much at home with the whole format that right. in, in the end we invited him to come over, and um, and here he still is, flourishing. That's fantastic, today. I didn't oh. know that. Yeah, let's go back to Private
1: Passions, as, as, as I sort of luckily stumbled upon that. Um, because you get used, one gets used to hearing things on Radio 3 or Radio 4, mm. and they feel like they've been there a long time, and, but when you bring something new in as the controller, is there a natural reaction against
0: something new? Oh yes, because, um, as you know, radio is an incredibly personal medium, and changing something on the radio, I often use the analogy, is like someone moving your toothbrush in the bathroom. You know, it just feels like a personal affront. (laughs) And so it was a long process. And I only mentioned private fashions because that was one thing I think we got exactly right. And Michael Barkley is a marvellous presenter. There were lots of other things we tried that we did not get right Right. and and had to move on. And I think you just accept that. Um, But I think as long as you keep your core values, which in Radio 3 are in terms of live music, adventure, Mm -hmm. Poetry, the BBC orchestras, the prompts, then I think, you know, around that you can experiment quite freely.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's good to know. I think that there is an incredible personal reaction to the, uh, to the radio because they're just in your house or in your, on your earphones if you're on the train or whatever. And yes. I think that it's that old cliche, but they are talking to you yes. And, yes. That, and that's really important.
0: They talk to you at the time you want them to speak to you. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and how marvellous it is now that the time when you want it to speak to you doesn't have to be the time that it's on the radio. Uh, And that, you know, that whole um, uh, system now of iPlayer and now BBC Sounds uh, Mm -hmm. enables you to listen to things in all sorts of ways. And I've tried to go on doing bits of broadcasting um, there because of my interest in early music. Uh, They asked me to do a series quite recently which we call the future of the past and was just right. going back over the whole early music revival. Um, I, I think there are, there are wonderful uh, highlights on Radio 3. Uh, and of course, uh, CD review on a Saturday morning is Indeed. Still, uh, still wonderfully intelligent. Discourse with Andrew McGregor and no,
1: absolutely, it's worth it. It's worth the license fee alone, and much and much more. Um, <laughs> just just
0: write that on the back of a five pound note and send it to Tim <laughs> Dave.
1: He'll be <laughs> <active>. <laughs> brilliant. Um, so, from one amazing job, control Radio Three, to another, the, the move to the BBC Proms, um, massive, massive gig, obviously, uh, like, like everything you've had is. But well, that was a massive one. Was that a real thrill at the time? Is that something you looked at for a while?
0: Well, it was a ludicrous thing to ask me to do, because I I was totally inexperienced uh, at running anything live that big. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the BBC had sort of established this trajectory, if my predecessor, John Drummond, who had, had done Radio 3 and The Proms together, and had then given up Radio 3 when I came in, but carried on with The Proms. And you had the whole support structure of the BBC behind you in doing this. You had a very well-established team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Maddock, who is now the CBSO, was the, the um, planning assistant, as it was uh, called in those days. So I inherited a really wonderful setup. And um, it was just a, a fantastic opportunity, which I was very, very lucky to inherit. And um, as time went on, we—I I think the thing about the problems in that period was we just hit the wave of increasing technology and increasing accessibility, mm. so that. You know, the number of free-to-air proms on television was far greater than uh, it had been in the past. Mm. We were able to try all sorts of experiments with the proms out of out of town, um, and um, uh, we won't uh, uh, we won't go on here about the issues around the last night. But being able to create. Uh, drop-ins, as happened in this year's last night, mm-hmm. on Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, yeah. really gave a feeling of inclusivity to that, to, to that occasion. So, I mean, to go back to your question, yeah, it was absolutely thrilling to be able mm-hmm. to do the Prongs, and, uh, and I hope that we did it well, and again, pushed the whole proposition forward, making it accessible, but the promise is perhaps a really leading example of something that can be both top quality mm. and popular. Indeed, uh, the... indeed. And I think that, as you said, we
1: won't go into, into the, this year's issues in any detail or drop your line when you did it. You did write incredibly, incredibly well and powerfully in, in The Guardian about it this year. And so you've already, you've already talked about that. But I think what it also showed was that, that it can be it's such a central event, even though a lot of people think about the last night in, in across the nation. Um, it's still such a very, it's, it's held in such great esteem, even for people that don't yeah. watch it as much as we'd like them to. It's, it's really there as a totem.
0: And I think that's because it became part of, if you, if you think how broadcasting evolved, particularly after the war, um, it became part of the sequence of national events. And, you know, there was Wimbledon, there was Ascot, there was the Nine Lessons and Carols at Christmas, and yeah. there was the Proms. Yeah. And it just went into the national consciousness in ways that I think we still need to research and and root out. I just came across a lovely reference just the other day in the Alan Bennett Diaries to sitting on the doorstep in Leeds listening to the proms of an evening and it's just that sort of presence in our national life where I think we're so lucky and um, you know the, the other thing about the BBC running the proms is that it does it with the seriousness that enables the quality to be um, upheld. So, you know, the, everything is properly rehearsed, yeah. everything. Uh, or is full of new music, adventurous commissions, and so on and so forth. So it's not it's not just any concert series uh, thrown together um, for the least possible money in order to make money. It is a genuine public service. Yeah. I don't I don't mean to criticise other concert series because a lot of them are totally up against it in terms of what they're able to do. But what I do mean to say is that the Proms under my successors have become a, a real model of what a, a top quality, excellent, popular international concert series should be.
1: And I think sometimes it can be, because it's so, it's so embedded in the national psyche, it's sometimes easy to take it for granted, at just how yes. good and powerful it is, and it's just there. It's like people that, that live <laughs> you, in London and don't go to St Paul's Cathedral or something because it's there, you, and sometimes yeah. you have to remind
0: people just how how brilliant it is. That's true, but you must have the experience of being taken for granted, you know, that it's <laughs> one of the things one lives with in me.
1: Well, it, what it is, I, I've been telling a silly story recently where someone last season uh, said to me, uh, a, a, a good a good patron of ours said to me, oh, um, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed the show tonight. And I said, oh, great. He said, I didn't like the one last night, uh, I hated it. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry about that. Um, she said that's the second show in the last six years of yours i haven't enjoyed and and i said oh well that's not too bad <laughs> making making light of it and, yes. and, and she was genuinely upset that these two shows over six years had, had really not been to her liking so i did have to apologize through gritted teeth to be honest but i was thinking well that's not too bad two in i think brilliant
0: you know and you, you can't please all the people all the time and if you were pleasing all the people all the time you'd be doing something wrong because something you would wrong. stimulating absolutely. them you wouldn't be stimulating them to disagree with you i i think i
1: think absolutely and it's a difficult line that in fact today i've just had a meeting at, at our theater space just about next year and looking at options for what could happen and it's talking about that about changing things and as you said about radio change is a difficult thing for people to uh, embrace if it if it's out of the blue and it's just trying to uh, bring change in for reasons that you believe in that you actually think it could be better i've never ever ever put a show on stage deliberately just to provoke to get a um to get a reaction ever and i think that if i've believed in it i might have had doubts and then it's got to stage and think oh we could do this better but we've never set out to do anything like that and then sometimes it just Goes wrong. I mean, I'm amazed yeah. with all of our industry how often it goes right, because there's so many
0: different moving parts of it. I think that's the challenge of opera, if I may say so, that there, there are so many moving parts that to get them to all mesh yeah. together in sync. And of course, when it happens, it's absolutely thrilling, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: You know. that's the aim. And I think that sometimes you, know, you can just get a couple of things that are slightly off. And, you know, even even during runs of, of Performances, yep. I've had people say to me, God, it's so improved from the from the, the time I saw it on the first night. Well, in opera, that's normally only about the second time we've ever run it on the first night. You know, if you're in the West End, on you'd have three weeks of previews or something. So, yep. Yep. Tight, it? so mm. I think that's just the nature of how it is, or rather
0: how it's been. Um, but before we, before we leave the subject of change, mm-hmm. I, I do think it's, that's so important these days because it's not just a question of changing, uh, you know, in order to do something new. It's a question of the fact that audiences are changing and our culture's changing and yeah. our whole setup, you know, is now likely to change really significantly. So I think it's a question of sensing the, sensing the public mood if you like. That was something we had to do at the proms. Uh, Of course, they had to do it this year. We had to do it on a couple of really difficult occasions, one being um, immediately after Diana's death in which happened just around the corner from um, the the, the whole funeral thing happened around the corner from the Albert Hall and then in 9-11 you know right at the end of the season and those those things you have to respond to because people feeling in a certain way about them and I think it's important to reflect that.
1: I think absolutely. The only one we've really had here in the last few years, we had the uh, the Grenfell disaster.
0: Oh, that that was what I was thinking of. yes.
1: really close to us, and um, and you know we lost one of our own team in 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 the in the fire, and so it was how to react to sensibly and with meaning, but not and not crassly, and not people throwing it away, and it's just yeah. really mm. a delicate balance. And but when you get it right, it makes that thing of. You've really paid tribute to those people and, and, and the events that happened, but without in any no, sort of yeah. walkish way or something. Exactly. You've got to do no. it with such uh, a level of taste.
0: Yeah, you did a really sensitive job
1: on that and uh, oh, thank you. It was it was it was the toughest time for sure. And um but but yes, it, it, it is difficult to gauge. I remember the, the work you were doing about nine eleven because that was a very sensitive time of what to play and exactly. and how to react to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, we got through it. Whether we'll get through what's going on now isn't quite another
1: matter. Well, let, well, let's go into that. You know, we've we've jumped across, but obviously you've you've been at the Barbican for for a, you know a long time now, and it's an amazing arts venue. Um, you, like the rest of us and everyone, just came to a halt this year. Um, how, how has how has it been for you running an organisation like that, and for the people within the organisation?
0: Well, it's been very very challenging, but I think the first thing to say is how lucky we have been comparatively, compared with many other arts organisations in in that it's the City of London Corporation who runs us, they employ us, they have kept us employed through this period, obviously we have furloughed some staff, but the majority have been able to work on the whole process. Of what we would do to reopen. Right. So the approach that we've taken and we thought very carefully about this is to reopen slowly and carefully so that we build up public confidence in the fact that it is safe to come back. Yeah. Yeah. So w- what we did first was to open our art gallery where a brilliant exhibition Masculinities uh, which uh, had had to shut when when the lockdown began, uh, the art gallery we were able to manage with social distancing with one journey round the yeah. building with plenty of sanitizers, plenty of hosts, and so on. so we opened that and we opened the green conservatory on the top of the building as a free offer to the local community, fabulous engage them during it. Then we added the curve gallery, then we added. the the Barbican Kitchen, the cafe on the lakeside, which has been wonderful in the weather that we've been having. And most most recently, uh, we've opened one of our cinemas again. Right. What we've announced now, in terms of music, is that there'll be a mixed classical and contemporary series starting on the 4th of October with Bryn Terfel, and moving on from there. Not a bad way to start. Not a bad bad way to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, you know, taking advantage of the fact that these poor people are so frustrated at not being able to perform. But the the really important thing, and I'd be very interested to know how you're thinking about this, is um, it'll be a blended offer, socially distanced audience, obviously, a blended offer of a live show and streaming. Yeah. And the streaming, we will charge for. Yeah, modest way going forward. But I think everybody realizes, you know, there were there were very good reasons why people gave away so much digital content in the lockdown. But I think it it there's a danger that it undervalues. Yeah. The, the contributions of artists and performers, and in your case, designers, and, and so on. And so we are trying to establish a model now where a modest payment for online content, alongside the opportunity to come for, for uh, live audiences, is a way forward. Yeah, great. We'll, we'll see how that goes.
1: Great. I think I agree with absolutely everything there. We only put one thing out of, of, of any length during lockdown digitally. We did a lot of work digitally. Yeah. Uh, but we put out our uh, film of last year's production of Balleret Masquerade on what, what would have been our opening night of the season, and we put that out free. Mm. Um, but I said, even on the day, uh, we won't do this again, and we're just about to next month put that pay per view. Th-
0: right. Picking right. like the middle
1: man out, as it were, and we're saying we're not waiting to recoup anything. That is immediately di- distributed between all the artists just to yeah. get- Yeah. Because so, so as soon as one single viewing's been had, someone makes something. It might need be 10 pence or whatever it is for view, but it's made. <laughs> I, and, and, I, think, I think it's more likely
0: going to be point one. <laughs> <0. 0. laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Let's, I, build, let's build it up and yeah. let's declare the fact that this has a value to artists.
1: Yeah. I think that's the thing, and it's about value, and it's about, uh, because it's been such a difficult time for us all in the arts, and it will, will continue to be, um, it's, a, it's an easy thing to try and get as many people in by reducing the cost or reducing, the, and I think we just can't do that because we will never recover from it. I think we have to put the value on it and say, yes, it's digitally, or there's a reduced amount, but we're not, we can't drop the price on that. We have to put a price on it because we need to exist after this.
0: Yes, so how did you... Square the circle on funding your socially distanced performances that you did in the summer.
1: Well, it was it was we only we did six this summer, uh, varying various sizes. And the big thing was that we because we we st- we have to build our theatre every year, which is a massive cost. Right. So we stopped before we 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 cancelled the season before we did that to save that money. So in a way, we had no um, standing costs. We had no. Uh, just fixed costs through the years, so we're able to work on a, on a purely on a on a one by one basis. Yeah. So we were just able to do a small. We did a eight in the orchestra, conductor, and, and five singers in one. Eight in an orchestra, conductor, yeah. ten singers on on another, and had a two hundred and fifty seats in uh, all right. socially distanced. And all we needed to do was not lose anything really. That was, that was all we needed to do. And for me, that was just about getting our audiences to, because we're completely in the open air, we didn't even have a canopy. And and I think it was just for me to be able to say to our members and our audiences, even in this year of awfulness, we still got on. However small, however few shows we did, we got on. So next year, we're going to be back. We've learned more and we'll be back stronger next year. So it was, as long as we didn't lose anything. And I was really keen that everyone, got paid obviously but it was a thing of we were using freelancers so we made sure that we employed a freelance photographer some freelance stage yeah. managers some yeah. freelance filmmakers mm-hmm. and we had over the six something in the region of 90 or 95 freelancers earning a day or two's work mm-hmm. in the normal scheme of things that's nothing of course but right then and now two things one it enabled some money to come in but also it, it smoothed the path for those people to get back to some form of yeah. work and doing yeah. what they do Mm. Which I think was a very important thing for us at the moment, that freelance artists have been badly served recently, really, and they're, they're out there not only not doing their job, but not earning any money, but not, not doing their vocation either. No. You know, it's no. just a real sort of dodgy bit of quicksand for them that they, that they need to get out of. So we were just happy to do something and wash our face with it, and that was enough, really.
0: Yes. And I think we're all looking for opportunities now because we know it won't be immediately that we can get to full scale, uh, full performances as to what we can do that genuinely helps uh, audience development, community relations. Those are the sort of things that are going to be very important in the near future as as we edge our way back. And, you know, of course, the West End wants to get back to big shows without any social distancing, because that's what's commercially viable for them. Mm. But I do think we have to be cautious about that. It's more important to be safe first, yeah. to build public confidence, uh, and to work gradually. Indeed. Well, because you said about confidence, because we had a company meeting here
1: last week, and I was asking everyone for their priorities, and they did lots of great priorities individually. And, uh, and I said, my one is, and the company one has to be safety safety is number one priority and because if we don't get that right it's the house of cards anyway that we we need to get that right absolutely and i think some of it as well as you mentioned it and i really really loved it when you said it, it was it's about confidence and it's about the psychological maneuver of audiences to that's okay and we can go there and, not as a risk to, everything's yes. got a risk, yes. crossing the road's got a risk, but not as a genuine risk to ourselves. We're going to go there for enjoyment, which is what it is, not to put ourselves at risk. And I think that's a really important thing, that confidence.
0: So one thing that we've taken very seriously is researching uh, everybody who comes and right. uh, uh, finding out where they've, uh, where they've come from, how far they've traveled, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And the statistic that I keep using now, because it's so good, is that 97% of people who are coming into the Barbican are saying that they feel safe or very safe in life. And that, that really is the public confidence that one needs. You've then got to build on to that, do they feel safe using public transport? Uh, And, you know, getting, getting there. Yeah. And we're finding quite a lot of our regulars using coming back to the Barbican as a way of trialing public transport again. Very good. You know? That's an
1: incredibly brilliant figure. I mean, that, that, I know what that takes because we've done only six shows, but that takes a commitment and a buy in from every member of staff, doesn't it? Yes. Yes.
0: yes. Uh, and, uh, and a very sensitive way of handling it with the public. Yeah. I mean, we're very lucky with our hosts and our and our customer relations people. Uh, and we guide them around the building, in a in a very sensitive way. So
1: Nicholas, I'm not sure if you, if you, if this is out there, I'm not sure if you want to answer it or not, then please don't, if, if you don't want to, but the, um, so when you're looking at the live performances coming back and yep. putting socially distance in, what sort of percent, and you know, you're going to stream them as well, but what sort of percentage are you looking at having a live audience? What
0: are you, what are you basing that on? Oh, so for this, For this autumn, we are absolutely basing it on the current guidelines that the audience has to be two meters distanced. Uh, And of course, you can have your family group or your couple. Uh, uh, So it is a very small percentage of the Barbican Hall, which, you know, so I I think we want to build that up gradually, but we need to build it up in line with government advice. And as uh, I'm sure you're involved in, there's loads of discussion going on about Mm. how you can work to one meter with mitigation uh, in the most effective way. Our orchestras are looking at how to work out um, getting larger groups of people on stage, mm-hmm. and it won't it won't be till December that the LSO uh, returns from St Luke's, where it's been able to do um, uh, concerts and recordings uh, without significant audience, into the Barbican Hall with Simon Rattle in in December. I think the big question is what's going to happen in 2021, and when does it happen? Because mm-hmm recovery is going to be slower than we think it is. Does your season start in June?
1: It starts in June and, and goes for a couple of months. I mean, I've got three. I mean, it's not giving any secrets away. Most of us have got, I've, I've got so many different models of variations on my desk, but in, in truth, there's only three really. And, and that's, you know, you know, sort of back to where we were, very doubtful, a reduced season like we've been doing this year of, of that, or, or obviously no season at all if it comes back. Um, with a vengeance but i think that we're all so much better prepared this year of course because we've all been through it once yeah and i think that we are a creative industry and we will come up with different options as long as we can keep people safe but you know we'll make a decision on it later than we would normally um go on sale or just to just to try and encourage people to to believe in us and trust in us rather than just saying wild things
0: that we might do and then having to go back on them. Yes. Well, I think that's the judgment, isn't it? Because you want to be confident. I think we've got to be confident that this thing will be overcome, mm-hmm. but it will, it will take time. And we are looking, as I'm sure you're looking, uh, 21, 22 financial year. How do we how do we model that? What sort yep. of income can we expect? And I I think the more sensible thing is to look at a two year, three year horizon in terms of, and then it'll be a return to something different that we haven't quite worked out yet. I, <laughs> so. I think that's absolutely
1: right. And I think that, that you know it has changed a lot of people's perception of of going to the theatre and or galleries or whatever but I, I do know a lot of people that and when we did our first performance this year well any of them but when we yeah. did our first one particularly it was such a return that people it was very emotional for the audiences and the performers and myself yeah you know, it was a genuine thing that normally not as many as you but we have you know yeah, yeah. performances uh, through a summer and I'm there for all of them and you get so used to it, and all the rehearsals you hear these classical instruments and voices yeah. and beauty yeah, yeah and you don't hear it at all, it takes you really by an emotional surprise when you hear it live again.
0: Yep, ex- exactly. So that's something that we've all got to look forward to and place a lot of faith in the fact that that, that will happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, been... great.
1: it's great getting some confidence from you because the, it it, the thing I felt as well, uh, Nicholas, talking to you now and on email before and some of our colleagues, is that it's good just being good to touch base with other peers at the moment to say, I'm feeling this about this. What do you...
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. But a thing sometimes a
1: natural... you say on your own about it
0: that you yeah, can't really yeah. talk about it. It's a natural human need, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I, think, uh, I think it was Alex Beard uh, was saying the other day that this is the biggest crisis in the Performing Arts since Covent Garden was built, you know? Yeah. Uh, of course there's been plague and war and death and so on yeah. and economic crisis, but this is just so all-encompassing yeah. that uh, we're going to have to share as much as we possibly can and be as yeah. resilient as we possibly can to get through it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, Nicholas, I know you need to go. It's so wonderful speaking to you. It's lovely speaking to someone that's done these incredible jobs and still is right at the heart of it and understands the, 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 the working thing of it. Because I think that's the thing that we're all, we're all genuinely, to, to use a badly used phrase, um, we're all, we are all in this together. We are. And, and, and it's really important that we connect.
0: Yeah, and equally, James, you know, you've done a fantastic job with your colleagues in creating something very, very special yeah. uh, at Holland Park, and good luck with it for the future.
1: Thank you. That means a lot from you, Nicholas. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Thanks. Thanks for nice joining.
0: To, talk. Thanks
1: Thank you. to talk. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.